ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Why, you're a mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall, either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Welcome to Bums on Seats. It's the second Saturday. We're only on every other Saturday. I know, we should be on every week. I'm Ashley Capaldi and in the studio with me today to deep dive into the latest cinema releases plus a bit of Oscar prediction chat, we've got Bridget. Hello. Henry. Hello. Victoria. Hi. And Lorcan. Hello. So today we are talking about The Lighthouse, which is that weird and wonderful black and white Robert Eggers thing with the guy out of Twilight. (laughs) It's much better than it sounds. Or is it? Um, Oscar contender Parasite with that director Bong Joon-ho, who's everywhere. He's everyone's favourite thing about the film, I think. And A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, nicest guy in film, Tom Hanks, playing the nicest guy on TV, Mr Rogers. But first up... Adam Sandler in apparently a career best performance in Uncut Gems. I made a crazy risk to gamble. And it's about to pay off. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. It's the dumbest bet I ever heard of. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. What is that? I started this. You're taking my money all over town, placing bets. I'm having very serious second thoughts. Are you serious right now? Howard, where's the money right now? Howard, got my money? Is it too late? I'm done. That means nothing. It meant nothing. Please. Give me another shot. I kept thinking that was going to end. So everyone's screaming Howard, Howard, Howard. Um, that is the character. Um, what's his name? Adam Sandler, played by funny guy Adam Sandler. He's a bit problematic in this. So he's a gambling addict straight up. He gets himself into a series of worse and worse situations as he keeps trying to pay the next person off to pay the last person off. Um, So he's kind of, he's not a crooked New York jeweler. He's just crooked with everything else. But Bridget, do you find yourself sympathising with him at all? He's a very tricky person, isn't he? Um, Yeah, I thought this was an amazing film. Adam Sandler does such a good job uh, against his usual comedy style. He's Um, not happy Gilmore in this, far from it. No, (laughs) he is 500% energy all the time. He never switches off. Um, And everyone's on the hustle. You've got to make your money somehow. You've got to sort of spend a bit, save a bit. Uh, borrow a bit, pay it back. Can you pay it back on time? Maybe put your money on the right horse. You might win enough money to to get where you need to. And he just kept looking like he was on the verge of getting what he needed to be okay. And and you were rooting for that. And you were thinking, and then he can just relax and have a normal life, like like us normal people. <laughs> but he doesn't. He doesn't settle for normal. He Ever. just keeps going and he, you just realise he's always going to have 
one foot in a pie. That's not what it, what you say, is it? There's there's one foot in the grave. There's a finger fingers in and all the pies. Yes, yes. It, it, it would just like find a, another pie. And all of the his, above. Stick his hand in <laughs> and and go. Yes, dear. I have got dinner ready. Honest, it's a lovely pie. I'm sure it'll be fine. Oh, and his yes, dear. So who's the girlfriend? That's a really weird relationship. So I, I figure she's much younger and a little bit more attractive. Yeah. Than so he Ju- is. Julia Fox plays yeah. the uh, the girlfriend, and um, uh, much like Adam Sandler's character, she's um, she's very flawed, and you never quite know where her loyalties stand. But you you do get the overriding sense that she's got this um this heart of gold um, that shines through. And their relationship is so bizarrely uh, realistic and endearing. Um, and I think, as Adam Sandler himself is kind of a, um, a controversial figure behind the scenes, I reckon, um, he does do a fantastic job. He's very, he does have a very nerve wracking performance, and the directing is so claustrophobic. Um, the film can be absolutely gorgeous, funny, uplifting when it wants to be, and it can be absolutely disgusting and devastating when it needs to be. Um, and uh, it does. It is a period piece. I think the, I think the story's that passed loose- me way by. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, I watched Lady Bird, and apparently that's set in two thousand one and two thousand two, and that completely passed me by. Oh. It's not until I see like a nine eleven poster, I'm like, oh, this is a period piece, right? Um, but for this, for me, it was absolutely drenched. I think they decked out like a small portion of Midtown Manhattan, and it's based. Um, I think it's based on the script that they, the Safdie brothers, who did uh, Good Time previously with Robert Pattinson. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's re- loosely based on their father. Who was a jeweler oh, in the same okay. area, and they wrote it back in they wrote it back in like two thousand nine or two thousand ten, um, and they originally approached Adam Sandler and he turned it down. But they 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 and they kept rewriting over time for different actors. Uh, and there's a basketball player that features heavily in the film. They keep kept rewriting it for different KG. basketball ta- basketball <laughs> players throughout the times. Um, but I, th- I think in the end they they settled for Adam Sandler and they went back to like the original concepts and it just works really well in that 2012 setting as well. And did you, Henry, say you knew you knew something about how they did the period setting or sure, how they yeah. shot it? Yeah, so the Safties kind of made their names themselves as up and coming film directors by using um, real life backgrounds as their film sets. So they'd often do it without permits and they'd use uh, mm. unbeknownst. Um, people in the street to be extras and part of their film and you definitely get that immersive quality in this film i think that yeah their sets are like perfectly tailored to each scene and that as lorcan said the center of claustrophobia but also it's just this relentless like visceral soundscape that it has i mean it's uh daniel lopperton who does the soundtrack and he kind of blends like cult-like chanting with classical music with kind of vangelis inspired electronica and it all just keeps this momentum up throughout the film i mean the pacing of this film is just doesn't stop from the moment it starts so until the moment it ends you think that was a lot of energy and it comes with kind of should come with like a sort of stress warning oh yeah i realized i was holding my breath right until the end i was like oh and it's then you just relax so i guess they're trying to ape his he never rests he can never rest he's always being hunted by someone um everyone's mentioned the pacing and how great it was does without that is there anything is the rest of the film interesting enough is the story interesting enough would it have worked without adam sandler or is he quite distracting because he's an odd casting choice i would think 
I think the film the film itself is very solid. Like you don't get that good pacing without a, a really good script. Um, it's not afraid to get strange and trippy at times, but not in an obnoxious way. They clearly thought about the story a lot, and they they believe they come up with the best version of the script. And I think they probably do. Um, the performances are all amazing. That alone will carry you through the film. If it wasn't for the the photography and the pacing. Um, and it's just so refreshing to see a film that obviously it's still a, it's still a Hollywood film, but for a Hollywood film, it feels incredibly realistic and engaging, and it feels like a day in the life of this guy who you would never ever want to meet in real life, but you just cannot take your eyes off him. So, what it's been nominated for so many various awards at pretty much every single film festival going, I reckon, considering how good it is and i did love this why hasn't it been nominated for the big ones do we think is it just it's a netflix hatred thing we're only allowed one netflix film a year i think that um when it came to um a24 the distributors of this film i think maybe they chose the, to push the lighthouse which always stars were puns um, and instead of pushing on the gems what which, terrible idea yeah i don't, I don't <laughs> know how that happened because obviously the lighthouse got the cinematic release and uncut gems got to, like pushed onto netflix which is such a shame because having seen the two this is like my favorite and it is I don't I don't normally come out of anxiety ridden films loving them but this one was so worth it like I came out feeling awful and my heart was racing but this just made me love Adam Sandler which is something I didn't think I'd be saying <laughs> and it's really accessible and enjoyable as well in a way that the lighthouse well it's very good perhaps it isn't as generally interesting that's that's true I think the lighthouse um it's tailored to a specific audience um, but this one, uh, anyone can kind of watch it, know they're so. about to like go, like taken on a ride. Oh, for sure. Well, that is Uncut Gems. Unanimous praise for that one. It's a certificate 15, and you can see it now because it's on Netflix. You don't even have to leave the house. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. And let's take a closer look at that film, The Lighthouse Now, starring Robert Patterson and Willem Dafoe and pretty much nothing else. Tell me, what's a timberman want with being a wiki? It's looking to earn a living. It's like any man. Starting new. On the run. Keeping secrets, are you? No, sir. Why just spill your beans? Why just spill your beans? So, that very odd trailer accompanies the very odd-looking film, The Lighthouse, directed by Robert Eggers, written by him and his brother Max, starring Robert Patterson and Willem Dafoe as two lighthouse keepers trying to stay sane while living remotely on a mysterious New England island lighthouse in the 1890s. Sounds like a bit of a brainful to get through. Lorcan, is this the kind of film you truly enjoy or do you kind of suffer through it? Well, this is the <clears throat> second film from Robert Eggers who did The Witch. And at the Pitch House a few years ago, we had um, the guy that played the father in The Witch come for a Q&A. And he said before the film that uh, The Witch isn't a film 
you really enjoy it to something you kind of suffer through. Um, Lighthouse is similar, but that's not to say it's without any kind of levity. At, at times it gets so bleak and disturbing that there is a moment of levity and like the whole screen that I was in would just like, just chuckle at how absurd the whole thing is. And Robert, uh, Robert, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are so great consistently. It's like... Um, it's kind of it's like watching a stage play like a really intense like Eugene O'Neill or Samuel Beckett where it's just there's lots of monologues but you you are absolutely transfixed the the film shot in a very narrow aspect so you you do feel locked in just like the characters are trapped on this kind of fog plagued island um and it's definitely not one for everyone um it's not one for grandma unless of course you know my i love randy my grandma. randy grandmas if you're with grandmas especially randy she might like this cuz it's not <laughs> it's not for the kids um but I, I can't recommend it enough. It's something so fresh and new. And Robert Eggers, he clearly has his interests in people kind of isolated. He likes period pieces, period pieces where people aren't very connected or communicate very well. And uh, he loves New England. Mm, you're turning me around, turning me around. Bridget um, Lorcan mentioned the way it looks there is it's a huge part of it. And there was something you said about the camera lenses, how they make it all look so black and bleak. Yes, they put a lot of effort into the cinematography and done a lot of tests. It was uh, filmed on black and white film and it's in an incredibly narrow ratio. It's just 1.19 to 1, so everything feels incredibly claustrophobic. And they used filters that don't pick up the red light so much and that really has an effect on skin tones. So if you've got any sort of blood under the skin, that turns out black. And if, if you see any blood during the film, that that's just black and it makes them look it really brings out all the pores and wrinkles and and hairs that normally you try and it's like um, oil even out. yeah at a certain mm. point they just look like machines yeah. see good technical insight told you <laughs> have with the best film reviewers actual film school people um is it a case though maybe i am getting more and more interested into dragging myself to go and see this because it did look a bit bleak and one that you wade through is it a case of atmosphere over plot though yeah, I would say that this film is um, be prepared for the mm -hmm. level of atmosphere mm -hmm. that this film has. I'd say for most films it's um, probably an advantage to go in blind, but for this a, a little bit of preparation will come in handy because as we talked about like the, um, the way in which it looks and sounds and the, and the dialogue as well all add to this kind of overtly atmospheric film where not much happens, but it just like continues to intrigue the whole way. Um, and this is a film kind of very deeply embedded in its influences. So um, Max Eggers, who originally wrote the script, wrote it based on an uh, unfinished Edgar Allan Poe story. Oh, see, now I'm dead interested. And then from <laughs> that, he's kind of developed, and it makes um, direct references to like Herman Melville and Moby Dick, uh, Coleridge and The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And, it's these, and then it has a lot of classical references to like ancient Greece. So these kind of, those are things that you can kind of get a lot out of if you're into that kind of and you know a lot about it but as someone who doesn't know you can also get a lot of it because of the way in which Defoe and Patterson interact. So is it, I can't remember which one of you mentioned it but it's dripping in folklore, does that turn a lot of types of viewers off do you think or is it is it real enough for you? I think a lot of people who didn't really want to go and see The Witch, the, the Eggers other film, ended up liking it a lot more than they thought they would. It was a lot more accessible than it looked, maybe. So does the folklore translate well? Um, I loved it. Once I, I remembered what The Witch was like, um, it's, it's kind of like folklore is what happens 
when you don't have other things in your life, when your life isn't as full of television, um, you have to start making up all these odd stories and superstitions and the superstition about seagulls having the souls of dead men and all of this stuff keeps coming out through the film and um, perhaps you, you build your own superstitions if you're in a lighthouse and the light becomes something mysterious and special that you have to tend and, and worship at all times. Hmm. I think the um, I went to a lecture with um, Robert Eggers and he was saying that like uh, roughly the original idea was that there's a true story of these two uh, lighthouse keepers that got stranded on an island and he was so interested in that idea and then as, as him and his brother Max went through the script um, they never mean to be they never mean to have like political resonance or be topical um, it always he loves using archetypes and as they as they rewrote the script they found themselves um, accidentally making references to folklore and um, especially myth mythology, like um, I think the ones they referenced were uh, Prometheus, Proteus, Trident, and Neptune mainly. Um, and they, it wasn't intentional, but they once they identified it, they accentuated it, especially visually, because he said he felt like if you make something archetypal, that will make it intrinsically interesting, and then people will read into it in their own ways, which is pretty cool. So I think any, everyone going to watch it will be engrossed in it, in the atmosphere, and everyone will have their own takeaways from it because it is so drenched in folklore and archetypes that it will just mean something different to everyone. Okay. We mentioned before that Uncut Gems lost out distribution-wise because they ploughed it into the lighthouse and it might sound like a very Cambridge Arts picture housey thing but it's in fact showing there and at the light and at the view cinema it's a certificate 15 it is out now That was from the score for Parasite, which is a contender at the Oscars this Sunday for the big prize, all the big prizes, director, best picture, by Bong Joon-ho. It tells the story um, of Kai Tech. Do I say that correctly? Kai Tech? Kai Tech. Can you remember how it sounds? <laughs> and his family, they take a peculiar interest in the wealthy and glamorous parks as they ingratiate themselves into their lives and they get entangled in an unexpected incident. Before we came on air, Bridget, I think you mentioned it's a hard one to review It's without spoiling it because it's all about the twists and turns, so you just need to experience it for yourself, really, but have a go. Yes, it's all about the unfolding of... Um this this unemployed family who are struggling to make a living so you start off with sympathy for them and, and they do indeed manage to get jobs um but the parasite theme you start off thinking is it the bug that's crawling across their di dilapidated semi-basement apartment is it them stealing their neighbor's wi-fi um it's a beautiful film it looks like oil paintings it's beautifully lit um even even the the scummy neighborhood that they live in um. but uh, the director for this film has really taken over all of the attention 
is that rightly so? Is did he do a fantastic job, or is it really just his his general personality? He he makes good award shows. I mean, I th- I thought the direction of this film was exceptional. Um, you can kind of it's I kind of compared it to almost like a sort of symphony and an orchestra. There are so many component parts to this film, and he does direct them like sort of metronomically, and it all kind of culminates for me in this excellent montage, which is about a third of the way through the film and it's just like it builds up with this like huge crescendo and the direction is yeah it's absolutely exceptional in this film Lorcan you've got one of your analogies don't you oh good analogy I'll build up to that though <laughs> okay um, uh, I think uh, Bong Joon-ho I think he's um, he's quite a charismatic uh, character to watch he's very likeable um, I think he's a very very good director but I feel all of his stories for me uh always lack some kind of element in their story. I think his most satisfying story for me was Snowpiercer, and I think that was the one he had least to do. I think that was based on a graphic novel. Um, I think this one, this one's not an exception. Um, I think it is very well directed. The performances are absolutely fantastic. You will not be bored. Um, but the problem is, for me, you have this... Um, you have this kind of 25 to 30 minute set piece, which is clearly the, the idea for the film. I feel like this is the idea that originated the story. Um, and so you have that, and so you build up to it. You build up to it so well, and it's so interesting, and there's always creative ways, and then you have that. But then once that's over, what do you do? Um, so I think uh, Henry would probably disagree with me on this, but for instance, you take something like The Joker, which uh, uses motifs of like mental, mental illness, uh, like healthcare cuts, um, but those are all motifs to tell a very simple character story, and I think it works very well. Whereas Parasite, uh, it's very multi-layered, and if you imagine like a game of Jenga, right? So you've got you build it up, you've got all these blocks, and you're building it up, and it's very it's very exciting. Everything's kind of building up, and then you play it. You're taking out the pieces. It's all very tense, and then everything collapses. But then what do you do? You just got a bunch of scattered pieces that you then need to tidy up, and I don't think they do a very good job of tidying it up, which is unfortunate. I think if they had to just focus on what to do after the fun part, they could have made a really great film. That Obviously, it's resonated with a lot of people, but I don't think it'll resonate as well because I don't think they tidied those pieces up very well. And Henry, do you disagree? Um, I agree up to a point. I think I wouldn't compare it as, like, as extreme to a sort of collapsed Jenga puzzle. I think there is a period... Um, where there are, like, between the sort of first and the second acts, it does need to recuperate itself. I agree with that, and I think it does do that, because it has so much to say, and it does so in in kind of dramatic ways. Um, And I think it's it kind of works because he does take on so many different themes. I mean, the central central crux of the story is a sort of class struggle, Um, but within that, he ties in the ideas of, like, you know, modern economy, climate change, all of these things. So... He does play with these different motifs and themes that does allow it to build up. I mean, I would agree that the ending isn't as strong as it could have been, and it doesn't tie it up as neatly, but I think um, it does have a lot to say, and it does so with sort of stylistic authority. And in all of his acceptance speeches, when he's cleaning up for best director or best film in a not-English language, um, Bong Joon-ho also always mentions if you can get over that the two inches at the bottom of the screen, look past the fact that there's subtitles, you'll open yourself up to a world of cinema, which I think we'd all broadly agree with. But in this instance, is it relatable to all audiences? Is it enough of a story that we recognise, or is the point that it's it's an unrecognisable place, unrecognisable families, or is are all the common themes there? It had a lot of similarities to. Um, 
English country house murders where everyone has frightfully good manners oh, and love. you've got the 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 classes and you've got the upstairs downstairs aspect of it and um it's just played out in a, a different place i mean it was definitely a korean film and i understand there are a lot of uh, a few elements that korean audiences would get that we wouldn't i think there's a thing where they joke about the news anchors because they're um notoriously have, have speak in a, a particular way but it was it was very relatable I think we see a lot uh, over here of, it's very obvious whenever film internationalism sneaks into cinema and like you've got Michael Bay dressing up uh, Chicago to look like Singapore because that'll sell better in China. Um, and we see, we see obviously more of a, like an Asian influence in, our, in our blockbusters, but I think the same's happening on the other side. I think uh, Parasite is very much a Western structured film. It's a film that people in the West will identify because it hits the same plot beats as the films we're used to. I think that is, I, I I have a suspicion that's probably why kind of films in Southeast Asia are getting more traction over here because they are structured like American films. It is still very much a Korean film uh, and deals with Korean things, but it translates all of that stuff very well. And I think that's probably a big reason why it's it's, it's an Oscar contender and so many people over here in the UK and in the States and the UK have seen it. It's a contender. It's not going to win, is it? It's not going to win Best Picture. I doubt it's going to win Best Director, sadly, but why should it then? Why, why did you love it so much that it deserves to be a Best Picture contender at the Oscars? I think the, the main reason for me was it's, it's a commentary on like class and modern class and the way in which you know, economic systems have led to these kind of uh, dissociation between you know, the haves and the have-nots. But below that, it ascribes real agency to each one of its characters, whether they're the, the rich uh, Park family or the sort of poorer Kim family. They all make decisions, they all make mistakes, they all see the repercussions of these decisions. So within that like context, it's it's a sort of three-dimensional analysis. It's not it's not saying this is how this is what's going on and this is how we should fix it. It's saying this is the it's more of a, a message of like urgency saying, why don't we just like reflect on what's going on at the moment? So with that, I kind of thought it's it's more three dimensional than a lot of these class structure films. See, that's that's kind of an issue for me because I like I a lot of people say like oh it's they'd rather watch a film that makes you think about something that, rather than being told like some kind of solution. But I would much rather have someone proposing a solution. I don't like people just being like oh here's a bunch of problems think about it. Like that's Half what drove job directors. That's what drove me nuts about <laughs> Manas. It's like oh look look at the, all these problems. Isn't isn't this a crying shame everybody? It's like okay it is. Are you, are you just going to like complain about it? You're going like, to. Did you finish that script or no? Offer, <laughs> offer some kind of suggestion because if you offer a suggestion, then people will talk about it. People will be like, oh, they brought up some good points, but I don't quite agree with the the, the suggestion that the filmmaker is bringing across. We could try something else. That's really what gets people engaging. But unfortunately, that's also what turns a lot of people off whenever people not feel preached to, but they feel like, oh, why is this person giving you their opinion when it's clearly wrong? But I think that does engage more conversation. Okay, Bridget, it's not going to win, but why do you think it should? Because it is a great, fun, very well put together, constantly escalating, beautiful to look at, and also quite violent in places, if you like that sort of thing. Darkness. It hits a lot of the spots. So I take it the families don't get on the whole time. Not the mm, whole time. Not the whole time. Who does? Who's the parasite? What's the parasite? We don't get an answer, apparently, and Lorcan's very annoyed by it. <laughs> 
But that is Parasite. It's a certificate 15. It's showing at the Arts Picture House in town as well as the Light Cinema. Here's a little bit more from the film's atmospheric score. about um, Parasite was the score. That's We were talking about its accessibility to a Western audience and the score again does that with uh, piano music and orchestral music that we're familiar with. It's uh, very well designed and at times it brings in much more jarring elements um, and um, what's the what are the electrical things? Guitars, know? keyboards, <laughs> those cars. When you, make, when you make up a sound out of nothing, which I'm failing. Oh, to synth. Do. synth, synth, yes, yes. Um, and that precision is definitely reflected in like I think the whole film is basically two sets that they designed exclusively for the film, and they they make the most out of it, and it's very much designed for for the shots uh, and the acting as well is is incredibly precise and just. It's a very neat movie, very neatly made movie. Very neatly made. Well, on to something probably similarly neatly made. Maybe not the set. The set's a bit ropey, but that's part of its charm, isn't it? Tom Hanks plays uh, Mr. Rogers. We have an American in the house to explain to us how huge Mr. Rogers was in everybody's lives. Um, a TV presenter on US television for children, sort of specifically helping them through the more difficult parts of life. But this film is based on the real-life friendship between Mr. Rogers and the journalist Lloyd Vogel, who wrote an expose, well, he thought he was going to write an expose, in Esquire magazine. Mr. Rogers, I'm here to interview you. It is so nice to meet you. You okay? Profiling Mr. Rogers. Lloyd, please don't ruin my childhood. This piece will be for an issue about heroes. Do you consider yourself a hero? We are trying to give the world positive ways of dealing with their feelings. Yeah? Like what? There are many things you can do. You can play all the lowest keys on a piano at the same time. 
sometimes we have to ask for help, and that's okay. I think the best thing we can do is to let people know that each one of them is precious. So, as I mentioned before, to explain exactly why Mr. Rogers is such an institution in American culture, we have our, our own real-life U.S. citizen. Welcome to England. We're so glad that you chose to live here. <laughs> but here. <laughs> um, nobody knows who Mr. Rogers is. He never crossed the pond, despite being on TV in America for decades and being... Is he one of your biggest TV figures? Is he Oprah levels of big? Um, I mean, he's not Oprah levels, but I mean, Oprah. Oprah's a brand. She's marketed herself and made mm. the thing. Mr. Rogers would never do that. He was always just himself, and that's that was the thing that caught on. Um, I wasn't I wasn't raised in the states, um, but I was kind of an army brat, so I, I was raised on a lot of American TV, and so even from the few snippets of Mr. Rogers that I caught, uh, it's it's pretty impossible for him to le- not leave a lasting impression on you. Um, and I did watch a lot of this film just through a veil of tears, just because, like, once every 20 minutes or so, Mr. Rogers would just give, like, this, like, beautifully um, uh, empathetic response to something. And it would just it would just strike a chord just the same way that he would do on his TV show. And it does the same kind of... Uh, the film's very interestingly framed. Uh, it's quite ambitious. I don't think the ambition always works. Um, but no, I think Mr. Rogers is very much ingrained in the in the '70s and '80s. He was very much a, like a subject of ridicule. Like I was saying, saying to Henry earlier, like everyone that's watched Breakfast Club, there's a point where Judd Nelson calls says, "Oh, who's says to Anthony Michael Hall, oh, who's your dad, Mr. Rogers?" Because he's got a very like neat peanut and butter with the crust cut off kind of thing. Um, but I, it's nice. With last year, we got a documentary called um, "Would You Like to Be My Neighbor," which is a very it's probably better than this film. Uh, it's a very heartwarming just kind of analysis of who Mr. Rogers was and it kind of balances like uh, whether or not he was a good or bad influence on children uh, for such a big figure. Um, but I'd, I'd strongly recommend Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It's a very heartwarming thing that I hope people would feel that we need nowadays. And you mentioned in the documentary, um, no you didn't, you mentioned in Breakfast Club that he was a, a figure of ridicule back there. Is this maybe something that we need now or are ready for now in these woke times of self-care and everyone talking about their emotions are we just ready for this now is is mr rogers making a comeback victoria um so i would i wouldn't know because uh, <laughs> basically uh, i didn't obviously i didn't grow up with mr rogers mm. uh but i did watch the netflix documentary and i think the the documentary was like really enlightening and uh it shows his way of life and the importance that he is to the people that he did influence in America and it really familiarised myself with the character and uh, and because I did grow up with Tom Hanks I think this it was important that Hella cast him um, because it, to foreign audiences it draws you in straight away that this could be one of his career best performances um, and then all that you get throughout is like the kindness of Mr. Rogers. Like Tom Hanks does such a good job um, in the slowness of his speech or his um, really like stoic but um, comforting body language. I think it's really important throughout it. And watching this film, having watched the other 
um, films on the show today, like Uncut Gems and The Lighthouse, it's just like a giant hug. Like, I, it was so needed. So maybe, yeah, because there is such like a large thing going on in the world right now, having watched this film and knowing that maybe there won't ever be another Mr. Rogers, it was just like, it was such a lovely watch. And it happened to us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Henry, you were a bit of a skeptic walking into this. How and when, if so, were you won over? So, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of of the opinion, people like this we kind of have to be a bit suspicious of, you know, people who are nicer than nice, no flaws. What's happened to us? (laughs) No flaws whatsoever. So I went into thinking, okay, how is this going to win me over? How is it going to do it? And it, I mean, it took a while because I found this sort of, its tone quite jarring at times. It kind of is presented as a sort of one of his shows and the story's a show within the show. And there are these kind of Charlie Kaufman-esque moments where... Lloyd uh, Vogler becomes like part of the show and it's all, it gets a bit surrealist but at about sort of two thirds of the way through three quarters you kind of you really get the message that Mr Rogers is saying and it's actually a really nuanced and um, delicate message that he gets across and it managed to you know warm my like cold heart I suppose in this <laughs> one and it, so, I think someone like Tom Hanks was one of the few actors that could have actually got that across and sort of by the end of it, we know Lloyd, the journalist, very, very well. We learn a lot about him. He talks a lot about himself to Fred Rogers. We see a lot about his family. We know a lot less about Mr Rogers, but, Bridget, you you were mentioning before we came on air that they very subtly mention why he is the way he is, how he got to be like that, and the fact that he has this, cynical people might call it, a mask of niceness 24-7 on hiding yes. something but is that wrong and well so many of us now have the instinct to be suspicious of someone who's good um and the journalist is trying to crack him open and find the real one the one that gets yeah. angry the one that that doesn't like people but um sure and, and and he admits it he does he does get angry but it's also possible to <clears throat> have the real you be someone who wants to be kind, who wants to be present. And even if you're angry, that doesn't stop you from being kind. So it's not a devious mask that you put on to hide. It's, mm. it's you putting the best aspect of yourself in front of the bad parts. And I liked the rest of the cast. I think they were very well cast, apart from I don't really like his wife just in general. She's from This Is Us, her face is troubling um because she's meant to be quite supportive and loving of him in this and she just has a very tightly set jaw so i don't think it fits but um everyone is is layered and complicated that's i think that's a um a recurring theme the dad so chris cooper i liked especially he normally plays kind of hard nasty mean hard to get to know older men and he's similar in this as well but he he gets that character arc there's there's a redemptive piece for him here um yes this is the journalist's father um and yeah fantastic performance and um it's difficult to forgive i think that's one of the messages here you can't just say i forgive you and everything move on because Uh, are you you still I, i really like the way um Marielle Heller shot the... There was an an altercation, a fist fight between father and son quite early Mm -hmm. on. 
and and it just sort of it slid away it wasn't it wasn't dwelt on it wasn't the the butting heads look here are the two bulls fighting it out mm-hmm. um it's just something that happens in that family that happens and ni- ni- neither of them then wanted it to happen and and you yeah. can see they, they kind of when they're dipping lightly into because it's it becomes very obvious the reason that um matthew reese's character lloyd vogel the journalist has these issues with his family and and they do sort of subtly again touch on some deeper stuff i think his reveal is a bit too big and cheesy about the thing that's really stopping him from feeling better but things like she has the tinny noise come up that he feels when he gets all disorientated and and anxious and little touches like that i think really helps and it's it is directed by a woman mariel heller who made the best film of last year everyone it was the best film of last year i voted for it in number one i think it made it to number nine no (laughs) Um, oh it made it at all (laughs) it did it was right at the bottom i think i think it was at the bottom of our 12 it was only um me and rowan i think the Uh, two of us voted it as our favorite and no one else put it in their top 10 i don't think that's the thing can you forgive me it is um i it wasn't in my top 10 for the year but it's a very it's a very human drama of uh real people portrayed in a realistic way it's like both main characters are gay but that's that doesn't define their characters whatsoever it's just these two people stuck in the scenario um and just to briefly mention the um the concept of Mr. Rogers again, like maybe the reason why he didn't catch on like internationally was because um there's not really there's not really any money in kindness. Like Mr. Rogers was never was never like an icon. He was never like the Simpsons. He was never like sponsored content because no one would want to sponsor him. He was just but his message was so fundamental. It wasn't like, oh my God, Mr. Rogers is on, we have to watch it. It's more like, oh, Mr. Rogers is on, we may as well watch it. But then you'd watch right. it and it's like being wrapped in a big blanket. Um I think that that's quite an interesting thing, and I think it's interesting how it's taken so long for people to identify him as like a significant figure. Uh, and I think it's quite nice that he was never he was never like sponsored or paid, or it, it was just he was a nice person. People watched him enough to keep him going. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of like Tom Hanks's whole career. Everyone's just like, oh, it's a Tom Hanks film. Must be all right. Let's go see it. Um, but the, Mariel Heller, who made Can You Ever Forgive Me, you mentioned that she put gay characters in, didn't make a big deal out of it, treated them in a different way to which we normally see them treated in cinema. And these two male characters in this, to have a woman direct them, this could have been a very different story, do you think, if it was a man directing these two men trying to help each other out and figure each other emotionally out and sort out a problem between a man and his dad? Is it? Do we think that Meryl Heller gave it a very different treatment to what a male director might have done? What I really liked about sort of Meryl Heller's direction was her use of um, sound, especially like her lack of sound at times. This was a kind of... And that the tone that she kind of creates is... Um, especially with the Matthew Reese characters, like this is a man not in touch with his emotions. So the sort of the lack of sound fills that void, and it's like it makes you can see that he's never thought about his emotions in these kind of ways. And then that that spacing that she gives it, you can see him for the first time actually thinking about his emotions. And that's the kind of overarching like tone of it is it's it's quite slow paced throughout the whole thing, but the the periods of silence are like some of the most emotionally loud because you can see him working out these emotions that he's never had to think about before. So I think everyone sort of unanimously seems to think it's a great watch. Are there there any problems with it? Is it just nice or is it actually brilliant? Uh, 
Lloyd Vogel does have an awful lot of problems all at the same time. It does feel like someone's thought, how many family history issues and current issues can we give him to sort out? So that seemed a bit forced, maybe, do you think? Yes. I said earlier, like, the the framing of the film is a bit ambitious. Henry went in a bit more about that, and I think there are some sequences where they just went a little over the top and had very, like, small sequences that you could easily have cut out and the film would have worked and paced a lot better. Okay. And, Victoria, why was the documentary better then? You don't have to leave your house to see it, number one. (laughs) The pacing of the documentary was, I think, much more um, successful. Uh, This film, uh, you go between two characters, obviously Matthew Rees is the main guy, uh, and his story, it just, uh, it's jarring at some point, so he just is going through a period and then it'll quickly switch to another one without like really taking the reflection that it needs to. So I think the hospital scene was one of those scenes where he just runs away and suddenly you're like in uh, the TV studio and you're like, there wasn't a lot of completeness there. Uh, the documentary I think was more successful because it, it was a large time period but it was done with great live footage and she, uh, whoever directed that uh, made it so you were with his career the whole way. And I just, I can't recommend the documentary enough. Like, mm-hmm. It's a really good Netflix watch uh, to really just uh, have a good two hours and to lose yourself into this world that because we know nothing about him and it really made me want to watch this film a lot. I think that is a, an important message I got from yeah. him. I mean, I haven't seen the documentary, but going into it as a, um, a British audience who knows nothing about it, it's kind of a... It's kind of an impressive thing that there is a sort of level of like you know human truth that means you don't need to know about Mr. Rogers in order to get anything out of this film. I'm going to go and watch the documentary, and you can also Google the article that the journalist Lloyd Vogel wrote. It's an Esquire magazine article, so just Google. Can you say hello? I think it's called. Is it? I think so. Oh, oh, can genius. you can you say hero? Can you oh, say hero? hero? It, yeah. And it's not. Um, Lloyd Vogel is the character in the film, but in real life, the journalist's name was something different. Andrew Juno. Andrew Juno, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yes. Why would you change that deal? Oh, you probably have to pay him. Uh, like <laughs> hustlers, he would have hustled you. And because you've portmanteaued so many different backstories into one character. <laughs> he would not have signed that off. But that is a beautiful day in the neighbourhood. It's a certificate PG. It's showing at the Picture House and the Light and the View in Cambridge and all surrounding Cineworlds. Bums on seats on Cambridge. One- 105 Radio. And we have saved a good chunk of time to fight over. Well, is there really even going to be a fight? They're normally the most predictable of all award shows. The big ones, the finale, the Oscars are on Sunday. Um, I think they're showing on a really random Sky Cinema channel, so you'll need a good Sky package to watch them. It's in the middle of the night anyway. I'll try and stay awake and live-tweet it for you. I said I was going to do that last year, but I fell asleep. Um, But, yeah, I'm at Film Fest Ash anyway. Let's see if I stay awake. Who do we reckon, then? Because it was it was slightly surprising in terms of best film, because everyone thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was going to win throughout awards season. But then 1917's been picking up every single best film going. Yeah, ironically, like a parasite, it's just snuck in there to all like the awards. Like a parasite. I think it's absolutely disgusting that film's been nominated for best original screenplay. <laughs> the film barely has a screenplay. Um, but you say that the Oscars are always predictable. Like every, like every so often, there's like a really great year where it's just a, a series of random decisions. It, it seems like, and even like everyone was surprised last year with Green Book, apart from Dave. I think we screamed at the screen 
that swear word then uh uh-uh, green book it was just oh honestly my most so disappointing joe was a uh, best female um best female actress i, I didn't expect olivia Wilde no. again no one expected she that no not at all i was with you <laughs> we were all so excited that she got it but going close looked a bit so just oh that was a hard Myth. moment <laughs> Miffed, but a wi- weirdly, Ford v Ferrari is nominated for Best Picture. It's just to get the kids to watch, isn't it? It's like it's... whenever they no- they nominate like Inception, like Dark Knight, just to get the kids to watch, and it actually has no chance oh. of actually winning. <laughs> but out of so, uh, The Irishman had a lot, a lot of hype when it came out. Um, it, it showed at the Cambridge Film Festival. It was the surprise film, and everyone was ecstatic. Um, but it's kind of, it's waned recently. Do we think that the Academy is just not ready to let Netflix win Best Picture? I think it is because Scorsese has, I mean, for me, when I watched The Irishman, I was taken by surprise because I was thinking this is going to be Mean Streets, this is going to be Goodfellas again, but it's a really um, sort of contemplative reflection on gangster culture and his career more generally. Um, I think it's probably not going to win just because Scorsese has made so many gangster films. And it's not, it's not a good enough and try of his. It is, just, it, is, it is too long as a film. I think that is a, there are definite weaknesses to it. I'm surprised as well that Jojo Rabbit's in there because that's a bit different for them and Taika Waititi is kind of new, but I, I wouldn't have put that as a best picture jo- film, uh, Jojo. Taika, I liked it. Taika's like a, um, he's like an alumni, isn't he? He was nominated for like a best short film like years and years and years ago. Ah, oh, so he's uh, come so through like the he's, ranks. He's kind, of, he's kind of always, he's always around there. Um, but I think I think it, it is kind of all up for grabs this year because you got, especially the best director, you've got like so many Titanic directors all coming together at once. I mean, you got Scorsese and Tarantino and Bong Joon Ho, which is like a new new for like Hollywood, but he's still been in the ether for a very long time. And like it, it could be anyone. I think there is a definite Greta Gerwig shaped hole in best director yeah. nomination. I think Todd Phillips being nominated for a film that has basically no direction. <laughs> is um, a big statement. <laughs> I feel like uh, the Greta Gerwig shaped hole may be, that's why maybe Little Women's the best picture, just so they can throw Say off stars. what they need to uh, by giving it to her. But I, I feel like it has a good chance just because the other contenders are a bit, I just feel like everything's a bit lacking this year and I don't mean to say that in like yeah. a really um, aggressive way. Just Yeah, I, I think it's between like 1917, maybe Tarantino's Hollywood because it's such an excellent film. But <laughs> and he deserves it. He so it's kind of long it. time coming, a bit like Joaquin. So it's in the bag for Joaquin Phoenix, surely, for Joker, best performance, which is... I still think the Academy might be a bit scared of him. They don't like any shenanigans at the Oscars, and he's been shenaniganing with every acceptance speech, hasn't he? So I think there's a chance they might decide he's too much of a I risk. I think he's behaved himself during his acceptance speeches. <laughs> I think he's—I think he is on his best behaviour. And he, he That's quacking that... on his best behaviour. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he had that speech at the um, oh, what was the was it the Actor Guild Awards, where he's, he's talking about like his. His privilege and like he he oh, feels like he's part of the problem. Like and yeah, I like that gained tons of traction. And like okay. the cynical part of me was like, oh, you you know what you're doing. You know how to play the game. I think maybe Cynthia Revo, best actress, could be a shock. I mean, Renée Zellweger's probably got it in the bag. Oh yeah. But I think just uh, Cynthia Revo. I mean, her role in that film. I think she helped. She 
helped produce the score. Um, She's she um, up for best original song as well. She'll be performing. Yeah, so maybe. I think they might give her that as a sorry. Yeah. Sorry for not letting you win over <laughs> Judy. Um, what? So why isn't Once Upon a Time in Hollywood doing as well as everyone thought it was going to? They just keep just wheeling Brad Pitt out and giving him mm. best supporting. Is that all it's going to achieve? I really hope it gets something for best original screenplay. I think uh, Tarantino's screenplay work is exceptional, and I just I don't know. Like, is Jojo Rabbit in that category as well? I just, adapted. 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 Oh, adapted. I just hope it doesn't, yeah. I hope he, he, I hope Tarantino gets something because in every award show that's been, his face is like the main figure and they switch to him straight away. And it's such a sad sight. I know. Well, he's not a company man, is he? He's another naughty one as well. So I don't think they want to give him too many pats on the back. But, but me- this is this is like he said, like he's he's said he's sticking to it's his tenth. It's the ninth film, film and this isn't is the ninth. It? But he says while he was making it, he was considering making this his tenth. But he feels this is his opus. This is the end of his career, and his tenth film is going to be oh. much smaller and just a little like a little epilogue. Ooh. So this they could because this is his big one. They might give him and Hollywood loves films on Hollywood about them. Says la la flipping land. I'm still not over it. Still. <laughs> it's it could be interesting if it the Oscars, as we were saying, is kind of generally predictable. But I think we have a, a discussion this year over best director versus best film. So Parasite's not going to win best film, but he's up for best director and he might take it from Sam Mendes who I've just never really rated no. but who who do we reckon is is maybe going to get best director then do you think it will just go to the same person who wins best film no matter what that is Todd Phillips made the most money so Todd Phillips I reckon <laughs> is a decent shout because he did direct that performance out of Whackin if he didn't by. like the film but he did Joke is a very simple him. film, but it's very effective. It's very well shot. It's very well, it's very well pulled off. Everyone loved it. Well, for the most part. Everyone <laughs> loved it. Um, and just sort of Martin Scorsese's not going to... He's had enough, do you think? They've I mean, given him enough toys. His direction in the film is... I mean, he's, it's the work of a legendary filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It is brilliant throughout the whole way through from the directing point of view. But I do think Sam Mendes is, is basically locked in for this. Um, um, but maybe Bong Joon-ho, cause, like, there's a lot of chat about how much everyone loves him, not just on the panel shows, but in the you know, in the academy, in the guilds. So maybe just to have a popularity. Of He's got that Twitter loves. attraction. Yeah, potentially. Just everyone loves him so much. And are we going to just get the Brad Pitt show continuing when he picks up best supporting role? Yeah, over? I hope so. He's going to be Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Anthony Hopkins and Tom Hanks. So this is Brad Pitt now graduating into the senior class, I guess. That is a spectacular slate for supporting actors. It is. And they could still leave off Willem Dafoe for The Lighthouse as well. I mean, that that's, that's for me, that's that the criminal? biggest role in all, all the nominations. An actress in a supporting role is going to go to Laura Dern for Marriage Story. Yeah. It's Florence Pugh Florence is Pugh. a lock. Do you <laughs> think? Yeah. I don't, I don't, no! Much like, only recently did I find out why Renee Zellweger was the frontrunner, and apparently it's because she actually sings in Judy, and apparently right. she catches... Um, Judy Garland's voice very, very well. Apparently that's okay. the reason that everyone's gravitating to her, but before that, I absolutely no idea. What about Taron Egerton? Poor guy. Poor guy, yeah. Poor he, guy. I mean, he didn't really nail the nail the thing. If he had it done, then maybe. Maybe. He nailed the lycra. Um, Scarlett Johansson, I liked her character in Jojo Rabbit. I don't think she did a lot. 
Yeah, Kathy think, Bates I love, but just because she's Kathy Bates. <laughs> and Jojo Rabbit really surprised me that uh, the, the girls at McKenzie... Thomas and McKenzie. Th- Thomas and McKenzie wasn't um, nominated instead of Scarlett Johansson because she has a more prominent role, I believe, in the film. Mm. And she's she's becoming like one of those up-and-comers like with Florence Pugh. Like, she debuted with what, Leave No Trace, which is a beautiful film. Mm. And it, it got a lot of credit to it. So I was quite surprised by Scarlett Johansson, but they had to put her in somewhere, I think. And Margot Robbie being nominated in Bombshell, I don't think any of the actors in that should be nominated for anything. <laughs> um, it's, um, what's the name? South African. Charlize Theron was the best in that film. She did transform into Megyn Kelly, but yeah, Margot didn't do a lot with that at all. But I'll be surprised if Florence Pugh gets it for Little Women. That's... She, it's just it's it she just was, feels like every so often they like to pick out like an up and coming young actress and give her a little and say so here's boost. your moment and, and she was like an amazing teenager She's, and to be flipping yeah. back and forth between that and being like 22 yeah. was she was a did great do job. a great job it's uh, maybe they're just saying sorry to her again that we didn't nominate you for fighting with my family because that was great or midsummer didn't yeah. win for anything like and that th- and she I deserved think, to I think she's the best actor in Little Women I think she acts circles around everyone and everyone's pretty good in Little Women okay well then you've changed my mind again <laughs> we are coming to the end of the show I'm sorry have fun at the Oscars if you're watching on Sunday I will be trying to stay awake with as many bums on seats reviewers as I can fit into my lounge thank you to everyone who's been reviewing me today we had Bridget Henry Victoria and Lorcan who's going to try and keep it together now while Mr. Rogers sings us out. Here's the opening to A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, the original. <laughs> 